This episode of Exploration Radio was sponsored by the SEG, the Society of Economic Geologists, an international scientific and professional association devoted to advancing the science, the discovery, and the responsible development of mineral resources. Find out more about their courses, publications, and student opportunities at segweb.org. That is segweb.org. Welcome to another episode of Exploration Radio. I'm your host, Ahmad. Our guest today is Kathy Eric. Kathy started her career as a research geologist at Olympic Dam, working on better understanding the metallurgy of that deposit, or something we would now call geometallurgy. 28 years later, she's still working on unraveling the secrets of Olympic Dam as superintendent geometallurgy. Even though it has become harder in our industry to remain in a purely technical role for a long time, Kathy has managed to do so for nearly three decades. In our chat today, we find out what lessons she has learned along the way and what has been the secret to her success for so long. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Exploration Radio, Kathy. Thank you, Ahmed. So we've been uh, trying to get you on our show for a while, so it's great that we've managed to find time and do the interview live. So first of all, I wanted to start off with, for this interview, while I was doing background research into you, I realized that you were in the United States Navy. Is that right? Uh, yes, I worked as a civilian for the U.S. military, the U.S. Navy. I wasn't uh, active duty military. So it's one of the ones that didn't wear the uniform. So how did the whole U.S. Navy thing come about? Uh, I was married to a person that was in the U.S. Navy, and he got transferred from the San Francisco area out to the California desert. So I worked for the Navy in the desert. And you'll say, why would you be yeah. working in the desert? Because the obvious place for the Navy to be is in the is desert. In the desert. Yep. Yes. Uh, the, the military, Army, Navy, Air Force, and, and um, the Marines all had their weapons test and development facilities are all in the desert. It's a long ways away from infrastructure or people. Yep. And and that's where he got transferred to. And so I started working for the Navy there. I had just finished two years of university. Husband got transferred. And, okay, off I went. And the Navy picked me up there to be a technician. Okay. And I worked in a bunch of those odd mix, terminal ballistics, and and hunting for geothermal energy, you know, of all things. So so this was still as like a geological technician, technician is that right? Okay. Yeah, as a technician. Yeah, wow. okay. yeah, and so the whole object around it, or the geothermal energy, is my boss was a geologist, and it was right after the first oil embargo in the U.S. And the U.S. military, being the ultra-conservative organization that it was, was paranoid about uh, energy independence. At the place at China Lake, they actually had hot springs and potential for geothermal energy, and my boss was smart enough to be on to that right away and convince the U.S. military that we should be looking for geothermal energy all throughout the western U.S. so they could develop electricity generation at the sites and make the, the U.S. military on their land sites more uh, independent of foreign oil. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so that's where I started working for them. So you'd already trained as a geologist prior for to For only two years. And yeah. then so you, I guess, I assume you finished your formal schooling after your time in the well, Navy? interesting. I worked for them for from about 1974 to 82 full-time, and then my husband, as they do, get transferred to another spot. They paid for me to finish off my bachelor's degree, and I just worked for them on the interim, you know, on summer breaks and all that. And my only obligation to the U.S. Navy was if I was to go back to China Lake, I would work for them. Well, of course I would, but I never went back to China Lake, so I didn't have to do anything. You know, I didn't oh, have wow. it, so it was it was good. You know, it was a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, and so how did the interest in geology start? Ah, uh, yeah. I grew up in Sacramento, California, and short distance to San Francisco, short distance to the mountains, Sierra Nevada's Lake Tahoe and all that. My father's family were all city people. My mother's family were country people. Mm -hmm. And country people north of San Francisco, there was old mercury mining that supported the gold rush in California from the mid-1800s onwards, but their family was all there. And my grandfather worked in the mercury mines, also had other family members that had properties in the area that ended up turning out being gold mines and all that. But as a young child, every break you had from school, you're usually up in the country and where you can just run wild. Mm -hmm. And so you learned all about rocks. Grandfather was a bit dizzy because he had low-level mercury poisoning from working in, this, in the retorts, that the things yeah. for, for making elemental mercury. 
And, but he would still take us out and around and show us things and just walk. He would never say too much, but he'd just take you out to all these areas. So it just kind of grew from there. Yeah, wow. And as I was going through school, I thought I learned that, ah, I can get somebody to pay me to do what I want to do, you know? <laughs> and so it was geology. Clearly geology early on Then I was in, when I first started university, I started off being an astrophysics major for about three semesters and decided it was always geology, astronomy, geology, astronomy, and mm-hmm. I settled back on geology and just went on from there. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So you, aside from the Navy, your first professional job was with WMC? First one as a, as a real geologist. So when I was working, after I finished the Navy and in between school things, I also did mining claims bigger companies going into areas that were historically mined by small miners, and I would just go out and check all their mining claim boundaries, make sure everything was okay so they could be taken over you yep. know, by one of the bigger companies. Um, and then I went off and did my PhD. And so after I finished my PhD, or was at the tail end of it, my advisor happened to say, where do you want to go? Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I want to go to Australia. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Why do you want to go to Australia? Um, in, in California, mining is interesting. It had a long history of mining, but became an environmental no-no there. Yep. And most of the big gold mines in, in Nevada were all short-term ones. And I didn't want to work at a short-term place. I wanted to work at a place that was going to be around for a long time. Mm-hmm. So Australia, you know, it sounded like a good idea. My advisor sent uh, letters out to all the different people in the industry he knew and, and went along with my thesis and said, here's somebody that's looking. And WMC picked up on that. And I got interviews and I got a lot of interviews and I got several offers. I was very fortunate. Yep. But the offer was to come to work at Olympic Dam mm-hmm. and to work on the geology of the deposit, to do research on the deposit. And I was going to take that job no matter what. I've asked a few people about uh, your connection to WMC. Mm, is, yeah. is it urban legend that you met with Roy Woodall and you went through and got recruited by him? How much of that is fact versus fiction? Yeah. Roy's been my long-term mentor. So mm-hmm. Roy actually did his master's degree at Berkeley back in the 50s. That's right. And Roy had set up what made WMC Exploration so successful. He set up a network of connections to different universities throughout the world that he used to go visit on a regular basis. And he'd always look for people that were, he would hire a lot of master's degrees and PhD people, mm-hmm. come and work in exploration. By the time I got hired, he was getting closer to retirement. So he wasn't going around and making first contact. He had other people doing that. Mm-hmm. And I got picked up that way. So I got interviewed one interview just to say, yes, this person is probably okay. Then I got the, the second interview where they came back to find out if I wanted to go to Olympic Dam. And yes, Roy, I met Roy within probably about two days of being back or being in Australia. So Yeah, wow. Yeah. And so he's involved throughout my whole career. I mean, I think you mentioned this. So you had a interest in working for WMC at Olympic Dam, or you just wanted to work in a long-term job with a reputable company? I was interested in going working someplace where I could do Sometimes when you do a PhD, you get a little bit delusional about what the opportunities are out Not there. just a little bit sometimes. Maybe. <laughs> very, very delusional. Yeah. But I had an idea, ah, I want to go be a geologist, you know, at a big ore deposit that's going to be around for a long time. Okay. And when I was getting different offers in, and the WMC one came in, it was for Olympic Dam. First of all, I had to look up and see what Olympic Dam was. <laughs> and, and at the time, there were only two papers out by Olympic Dam. By then, two and this, three on the way. And... And to realize that, you know, to under, fully understand that it was the newest ore body of its type, you know, to have the possibility to go do industry research at the newest ore body of the type, it was, I was gone. I had all those other offers and several of them paid more, even still work in the U.S. And I was like, nah. Do you remember some of those competing offers? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, very well. Actually, I had some in Australia. One was from CSIRO to work with Charles Butt, who was kind of the guru of surficial weathering and and, and regolith and, regolith uh, yeah, and all that. chemistry, all of that stuff. Yep. Uh, at Curtin, they were just purchasing shrimp too. You mm-hmm. know that, or sorry, no, it was shrimp. I can't remember shrimp too. But they were looking for somebody to come and and set that up. You know, I didn't know a whole lot about that, but I still got an offer anyway. I was also offered by Union Oil to work in the geothermal industry because the the oil companies were involved in the geothermal energy. I also got an offer from Chevron to do a similar thing. Then also from, I can't even remember, they're not even around anymore, but to work in Nevada. And so, as soon as the Olympic Dam one came through, that was it. My mind was already made up then. Yeah, wow. So when you first started in uh, at Olympic Dam, what were you working on yeah. at that time? When I first met up with Roy Woodall, he said, you have two jobs. 
Mm -hmm. One is to understand, do the research to understand how this ore body formed. And he said the second is to provide mineralogical support for metallurgy. Okay. And he had set up all throughout WMC, wherever they actually had operating mines, there were research geologists at all the different mines. Mm -hmm. And their job was twofold, to do research and to also provide that mineralogical support to metallurgy. Yeah, so the research and the more practical side. Absolutely. Of... And I didn't advance a lot on the research front for several years because I very quickly got swept up on the whole metallurgy side and under trying to explain to metallurgists what the ore body was going to deliver, then trying to understand when things went wrong in the process plant, actually, how could I relate that back to the ore? Yep. And in the meantime, I was also doing the process support to metallurgy was to do monthly composites and point counting on plant samples every month, which is excellent baseline information on, on how the plant is actually performing. And I would spend two solid weeks Every single month for two years, point counting. If you and point counting is an old-fashioned thing, but oh, it's tough. It is. I mean, I is think people hard. that have gone through, I think paleontology or something, they yeah. often have to do this point counting, yeah. and it, it is just looks absolutely it, miserable. It's miserable, and I did it, but I'll tell you what, I learned a lot. <laughs> you know, a massive amount of stuff. But during that time, metallurgists would always say, as they classically do, when 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 something goes wrong in the plant, is the ore has changed. It took me about two years to actually understand that it wasn't the ore that was changing most times. So I believed them, you know, and I believed them. And so you, you hear that the ore has changed. So I go running back to the mine, you know, try to figure out how the ore has changed. And it, it took me a long time to hone on that they actually collect a lot of data, mm -hmm. you know, in the plant. And those are all the process control information. As soon as you get your hands on that data, you can start seeing right away. You can tell whether it's ore body related or plant related. But also when you look down the microscope, the microscope doesn't tell you stories. Mm -hmm. Microscope tells you the minerals are there. In the processing plant, it's interesting because what might take nature, you know, a billion years to, to form, you can see these things unraveling in the plant in a matter of hours to days. And mm -hmm. so that's why I always stayed doing those monthly composite samples, the, looking down the microscope at them, because you could actually see all the things. And then you oh, can yeah. go back in the ore body and look at them. That was really our segue early into doing geometallurgy, but it was long before it was called geometallurgy. It was just called ore characterization. Yeah. So we had all kinds of ideas about how to try to characterize the ore, but WMC being a relatively small company, you didn't have infinite resources at your disposal. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you had to justify everything you did, and rightly so, and, and try to relate on how it's going to actually improve the place. Mm-hmm. You you kind of mentioned it that you know like now we obviously call this discipline geometallurgy. Mm. Now it's kind of acknowledged that a metallurgist has to have some fundamental ore body knowledge to yeah. understand what they're doing. Yeah, you know, was that something that was embedded, or was that basically your role essentially? Uh, it's interesting. Old school metallurgists. So when I was first Olympic Dam, one of the excellent things I had there was two things. We'll get back to that. Two things were incredibly interesting. I had to learn how to speak change my geology language into a language that metallurgy understood. So as mm -hmm. geoscientists, we have highly specialized languages. Now, when you talk, use that highly specialized language to a, a metallurgist or a mining engineer, usually the first thing that happens, roll, their eyes roll back in their head, and they uh, give you this blank look because you're talking the, the, the importance of advanced argillic or propyletic. Yeah, and, we're just uh, talking they, gobbledygook yeah, to them. Yeah, right? It's gobbledygook. And so you very quickly say, well, I'm not getting through on this point. I actually have to start explaining what I'm seeing in terms that they understand. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you start doing that, the metallurgists just, you know, they swapped over immediately. Mm -hmm. And then they just want more and more information. Like, did that take you a while to learn that, like, yeah, language? Yeah, it, it, it took me about a year to get it, okay. you know, to, to start doing that. And we had some really smart metallurgists that you start talking to them in the language you know, that you're used to it, and they just look at you, you know, look at you. So having to step out of my own little discipline immediately mm -hmm. was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And it led me down a path that I had to answer questions to metallurgy that if I was only in geology, I would have never thought about those and thought about it in the way how I can go back and look at the ore body to try to find that answer. Mm -hmm. So being cross-disciplinary is the best possible thing that can happen to any geologist once they go into industry. Uh, you have to know more outside your own little sub-discipline in order to do well. 
part of the reason when we like started talking to you about this topic, you know, you have these kind of pull and and push in your careers mm. and your disciplines. Yeah, and I think what you're describing is like a really nice way is that you were pulled in a way to develop your language and your knowledge mm. and communicate it in a way so that other parts of the business understood. Mm. Yeah, sometimes maybe as geologists, you kind of get wrapped up in our geological world and don't mm. realize that there is actually a business side and other disciplines that require our knowledge in a different way for it to be digestible, essentially. Yeah. The, the things that was really interesting there, that offered me the opportunity to look from from the drill core, because the mm -hmm. Olympic Dam, there's nothing exposed to the surface. The only exposure of the ore body that we have is underground drives and development or drill core. So I, could, I was able to look at drill core all the way through to final products out at the end of the gate. Mm -hmm. So perception of nerdy mineralogical things, but then translated in a thing that was meaningful to the process, to the metallurgist. Mm -hmm. They loved it. What they required, they didn't require that much. They just wanted to know the basics of what was in their samples and give them some numbers to back it up, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I did. So some of our first steps that we had to do was metallurgists actually assayed for a lot of elements yep. because they have to control their process. Geology, we, we only assayed for six to eight elements. And when I started learning, oh, metallurgy has all this information that I don't have, then how can we go back and get in the ore body? So a lot of our early predictive work was developed with metallurgical data, and it was trying to make my life a lot easier. And it took a long time, and it takes a long time and a lot of money to get that level, same kind of knowledge back into the ore body mm -hmm. and, and to figure out how it goes. And, and again, when you're WMC, there was always money available, but it was, it was a lot more difficult to get your hands on it. But I had to learn how to get my hands on it, too. Yep. And in geology, it's often difficult to cost justify something because you're a long, long ways away from final product. The closer you get to metal out at the end of the day, the easier it is to justify everything you do in terms of potential gain or loss. You yeah, know? that's hard. So you start doing that. And they actually want to know, metallurgists want to, the information that they require, or sorry, the data that they require, is the same data that geology requires, but it's just used for a slightly different purpose. So I learned how to figure out what I want or what I thought I needed, do the work for metallurgy, convince them that they, they needed more of this information. Then I got the money that way to go back into the ore body and start building our data sets in there. And then and then that just took off, you know. So for those of people that may not know, why is geometallurgy so important at Olympic Dam? Uh, what makes it yeah. like a unique problem here? Or is it a unique it's problem? Not, it's not unique. Some place is just more important. So when, when you go to develop a mine, Historically, what had been done, there would have been, you know, maybe five or ten big metallurgical samples collected, doing big, huge testing. They designed the whole plant for that. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's interesting about that is it's almost assumed that those five to ten samples that they collected and did a lot of development work on were going to be, or developed your whole process plant for that, are representative of what the ore looked like now and what it looks like in the future. Yep. And, and that's a really important word, representative of yeah, what they are. And it was representative of the volume of dirt that they took it from, but not representative of anything in the future. So you have plants all come online, you know, and they do, most of them do reasonably well, we hope, to start with. A lot don't. Um, and then the ore starts changing a little bit, and mm -hmm. the ore starts changing and nobody expected it because you didn't do any testing on it, and you had no forward knowledge of what was going to happen. Plants historically all have startup problems, and it's usually because what you test and developed your plant on is not the first ore that goes through the process plant. Mm -hmm. So there's where the problems start, and, and they just continue on from there. As it become more important for the industry, and we know that our industry has changed from where returns were kind of important. In the last 20, 20 years, there's no question about the returns are what drives us, yep. and a better understanding of a ret of return back to shareholder, clearly off of that. That's changed the focus of the of the business to say we actually have to deliver and mm -hmm. we actually have to be able to pre better predict what we're going to deliver. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what's driven the whole geometallurgy side. So all ore bodies change with time because you sequentially mine them out and all ore bodies are, they're not homogeneously uniform across the whole thing. They have little blobs of different stuff and we just have to characterize it. So at Olympic Dam, everything was good for a while. We'd start to see subtle changes but then, magically, one day, our, our, all of our circuits, the, the leaching circuit just went from a material that had the consistency of a chocolate milk mm -hmm. into something that turned into a gel. And so you have these big, massive tanks that when they gel up, everything comes to a screeching halt mm -hmm. and try to figure out what went wrong, you know? And even after we figured out what went wrong, it took us several years to be able to 
do something about it. So we could we went from being able to at least tell the metallurgist, hey, in our case it was chloride that was causing the problem, hey, you're going to get this tomorrow, be prepared, and changing our mind plans to deal with that to go more in the predictive space. So now we don't gel. We haven't gelled the plant for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's because we do all that forward work to ensure that we don't. So you say, well, what's that cost of that? And you think about, you know, on the size of Olympic Dam or any art organization where you are, you take one day's metal production, and if you've lost that, that usually pays for more than whatever any geometallurgy program you can ever imagine. And we were losing weeks on end when we were gelling that plant. So it was very easy to start justifying that work, and the business got it right away, yep. you know, and it just, just exploded from there. So for Olympic Dam, it's, and we're a 100-year-plus mine, so for Olympic Dam, it's controlling all those nasties, and it's the, the things that are deleterious to our process now, but will be in the future too. And I think that's a that's an important point that, you know, like Olympic Dam, I guess the unique thing about Olympic Dam is the size of it. So you have this, like, variability that uh, that sits in the ore body, and then as you, you know, go along the mining cycle, you're going to have that variability kind of ebb and flow at times depending on the, the, the ore body itself. Yeah. So I think that's a really important point you make is – at the startup of a mine, thing that you're looking at then may not be what you're going to be facing with in five years or 10 years. Yeah. And sometimes you only really acknowledge that problem when you become aware of that problem when you get to that problem. Yeah. And, then, and then that's a challenge. And, and a lot of people, it was funny because when I always think back, when, when we first started to do what we were calling ore characterization, just wanted to do a little bit of mineralogy on the stopes that were around. And it was the chief geologist at the time who was the biggest hindrance to the process. And, and he would say, well, we mine stopes right next to it. What makes you think that, that stope, you know, the stope next to it is going to be any different? Olympic Dam, it is, you know? But it, it took that time to start understanding. And you could go through and try to forewarn, but I think sometimes the best way that we learn is when we're, when we're hit with something. Yep. You know, often you can tell people this is going to happen, this is going to happen. They don't believe you until it actually happens. Yep. And and then that changes the focus, you know, did for Olympic Dam. And you can see similar scenarios all over the place. If you do it right from the beginning, it's very easy. It just needs to be incorporated into your normal work. So do you face this inertia from people that, like, you know, once you build a $200, $300 million plant, yeah. you know, do you really want to be the agent of <laughs> yeah. the agent of death to come out and say, actually, this plant is not going to be what we want in yeah. five years? Yeah. Um, the, the beauty on some of those is, is, is planning that your plant is not going to be suitable in five years. And then, so you can progressively start changing that plant to suit the conditions mm-hmm. and do that. So there's a couple things. When you, when you identify parts of the ore body that are not necessarily conducive for your plant right now. There's there, the first option is say, well, can I use a mine plan and blend it out? Mm-hmm. And if you can blend it out, no worries. Yep. You know, it just goes on, everybody's happy. But then you also say, ah, what happens if we can't blend it out enough? What are we going to do? Then you say, well, are there short-term processing changes that we can change? Can you just change the operating conditions mm-hmm. in order to make it go through? And then if you say, no, I can't do that, I actually have to build on new processes onto that plant to treat it. That just requires time. But if you can put that into your mind, into your plan and your whole business plan to do that, then it's not a shock when all of a sudden that ore hits you one day and you can't produce any metal. So it's that ability to better predict what the future is going to look like, mm-hmm. which is always difficult, but still have a an idea. And it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to do that. It really doesn't. A lot of people think it does. Mm-hmm. It's just thinking about your ore and characterizing it. So historically, you think as, as geologists, assays were always easy. So our ore bodies are characterized very well for their for their metal, you know, the payable metals. Sometimes not so much on the other metals, but those other metals are important. But it's it's the not how those metals are or those other elements, it's the minerals that they occur in because the process plant treats minerals. Mm-hmm. They don't treat elements. And when we were able to convert all of our element information into mineral information, and then we could we can relate our recoveries or our throughputs or our reagent consumptions back to those minerals, we were able to map it out all across the ore body, mm-hmm. and we just continued to do that. And I think this is, uh, I think it, uh, hopefully it's public information because I've seen your public presentation yeah. on this, but you, know, you do have this model of the ore body where mm-hmm. you can look at mineral species throughout it. And I think that's a really, really good point because I remember when the first time I saw it, it made total sense that mm. from a processing point of view, they should have a like a resource model equivalent that mm. tells them the mineral distribution, not necessarily the elemental distribution yeah. to some degree. 30 years ago, you didn't have that ability to do that. 
you know? Now we actually have, there's all kinds of technology around to help you that, to mm-hmm. do that. There's no longer excuses not to do it. And most places actually get it. Yep. They really do. You know, they're trying, they just try at different scales and all that. But a lot of times you don't make changes until you have to, which, yeah, is, which is rightly so. So the other point of it is that do you think your ability to do the level of work that you did would be possible if it wasn't Olympic Dam, the old body that you were studying? What if it's like a small deposit that doesn't have the uh, leniency, say, from an mm. economic point of view to go down these paths? Yeah, it was interesting. We had Uliri deposit, mm-hmm. concrete hosted uranium deposit in WA. And WMC had it for a long time. They did test work and it kind of dropped back down because of the three uranium mines policy. Yep. Um, and in two, about 2009, 2010, we went back and did the evaluation on that. And we're, we're going to mine it. You know, mm-hmm. went through all that stuff. And we actually had the chance to do the geomet right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And we did that. And the first thing we did is we mapped out the clay distribution across that ore body because mm-hmm. in, in all the calcrete-hosted deposits and in lateritic deposits, which have don't have a good history of coming online properly, it's all about clays. And we were able to map those clays out and for a relatively small deposit. Now you'd say, well, if it wasn't the might of BHP behind it, could you have done it? Yes, you could have. And we were doing the mineralogy on each sample, and it was only costing us about $10 a sample to do the mineralogy in addition to the assays. So, nah. I think I, I agree with you that I think a lot of the excuses given are more for personal interest rather than, I think, for the benefit of what you could mm. do with it. Yeah, I think people complain about costs and things like that. Is any geometallurgy program on an ore deposit going to cost $250 million? No. So, well, like, you know, getting the wrong plant is going to cost you... Hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, so. you, and, and that's right. Well, and even think, we'll, we'll just mention our colleagues down the road from us, Kara Patina's numbers. I was just reading some stuff yesterday. Mm-hmm. Approaching a billion dollars. So plants no longer are just a few hundred million dollars. They're billion-dollar facilities and even multi-billion-dollar mm-hmm. facilities. So that risk of, of not spending that little bit of money up front, and it's relatively cheap, but the focus always is back up um, on the front end not to try to spend that money. When in hindsight, when you have to go back and recollect all that information, uh, it costs you more, you know, mm-hmm. to do it. And if you just do it right, but a lot of times you just don't know what right means to start with. Yeah, that's all right. Because I think, I mean, at Olympic Dam during the Olympic Dam expansion project, mm-hmm. this way you went and recollected a lot of that information yeah. back through historical. Yeah, we data. we reassayed six hundred thousand samples at that point. We we mine the ore body. We don't sequentially start at one end, just mine it all, and as you move along. We, there's a real checkerboard approach to the mining mm-hmm. there. And because of that, the information that was gathered from the drilling of the first drill hole there is still used in the resource model today mm-hmm. uh, because we haven't mined all those areas out. So you have this long-term need to make sure that when you start doing all these predictive algorithms that you need good data sets behind you. So Olympic Dam, once we had developed the ability to, to do the predictions – then it was like, oh, this is okay. Our ore body, we don't have the right assay information to do this. And so we started going through that assay program. And we reassayed at the time 600,000 samples to bring all the historical stuff up to a modern standard mm-hmm. and then changed all of our assaying methods going forward so that everything was aligned. But that was a significant commitment from the management at Olympic Dam to do that at the time. So. Yeah, I, I knew people that worked in that program, and it was a massive undertaking to go yeah. through that, especially <laughs> yeah. for an old body the size of Olympic Dam as well. Yeah. But, you know, it wasn't a, a small bite of the cherry that you really wanted to have. <laughs> no, it was it was what we called the Big Bang, yeah. you know, because we had been up in one part of the mine for you know twenty twenty five years, and then and that was only about a third of the ore body, and all of a sudden it was boom. You're trying to understand the other two thirds of that ore body mm-hmm. over a very very short period of time. So it was we had to do a lot of work very very quickly. So now, I mean, you've given us some examples of things that worked well in this process. Now, when you look back, are there things that didn't work well that you would do differently? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think actually things, most things, because I had, I had time to think about it, you know, mm-hmm. and in earlier days, you, you, there, you had more time or you, the perception that you had more time. It could have just been that I was younger and my brain was more efficient <laughs> than what it is now. So, or you could think quicker. So it was, you, you thought you had more time. The things that we would have done differently was an, our initial testing in our stope areas, you know. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have that right because we were trying to figure out what we needed to do, and we and it was kind of on the fly, you know. You knew what you wanted to achieve, but you just didn't know 
how you're going to achieve that. So we had the latitude to do some stuff, but no matter what we were spending, we still actually it still had to prove value back to the organization. Mm-hmm. Minor things of testing protocols, you know, yeah. and, and not big, huge whopping things because it was pretty clear that we had to go through, we had to characterize the minerals, you had to make the relationship between the minerals and the process, and then just do it. So is that where, uh, you know, you mentioned that you had time to do this. Is that where actually, uh, not going slow, but taking the time to kind of think through it worked well? Uh, it, it, it's interesting. So I've been Olympic Dam for almost 28 years. Mm-hmm. And what has that afforded me? And I'd always go back and reflect and say, it's good for people to move around. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is. The more you see, the better. The more opportunities you have, the better. And I look at Olympic Dam, my opportunities was being able to see everything from the very beginning to the very end of the process. True. When you're at a place for only a very short time, you never develop that long-term view of what's actually required. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in for a short time. You're learning like a mad person, which is which is fantastic. You're hopefully making changes, but usually our quick cycle on wanting to move people around in you know, like three years, you know, two to three years, two years is way too short. For Olympic Dam, three to five years, we wouldn't have been able to achieve all, a lot of that stuff without this, that consistent um, having a long-term vision and having people there. So you don't want everybody there for forever like I've been. You do want people moving around. But there's a, also foundation in there. You have to have this this progressive long-term view that we're going to do this when we get the opportunity and the next opportunity we're going to do. Just mm-hmm. continue to build on that, to build and learn. So just as a tangent, do you get any pressure from moving to another site? Uh, in the in my early days with WMC, not a, not a big pressure. It was more of... You know, if you want to move into exploration, you can. And I, um, my attitude was, I'm working on the best ore body, most interesting ore body on the planet. Why do I want to go anywhere? You yeah, know, yeah. and getting a lot of freedom to work on the things that I wanted to work on. When you have different performance reviews, people say, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, stay here, you know. <laughs> and it's not stay here and just do the same old boring stuff. It's still stay here and continue to add value and continue to build, you know, as we move along. Not not a pressure, but there's been significant opportunities to move around if I chose to do that, and I've just chosen not to. Okay. You know, any any particular reason why? Do you it's do you best. feel like your work is not done at Olympic Dam? Is that part of the? Oh, Olympic Dam, every drill hole, and we're on probably drill hole number twelve thousand now. Mm-hmm. You know, every drill hole is interesting. You know, mm-hmm. it remains interesting. There's challenges everywhere, and there's just plenty of opportunity. And so, why would I still want to go anywhere if I? Uh, and, and I'm still given the freedom to work on a lot of interesting things mm-hmm. besides doing our normal day-to-day stuff. So is there, I mean, you mentioned that you've been with this in this role, in this technical kind of role in the same company for 28 mm-hmm. years. Is there a trick to being a technical person and surviving for 28 years? Yeah. Without becoming a manager or without becoming part yeah. of the machinery, I guess? What most companies don't do well is um, they have their systems are clearly set up if you want to become CEO someday or executive manager. Yep, there's clear paths for that. They don't have very well systems for for technical people. There's been ebbs and flows throughout time Mm -hmm. on how to manage that. And they're getting better again, but there's still those ebbs and flows. So it all is not doom and gloom. It's it's just a decision you make. You either want to go down the, the management track or you want to stay a technical person, mm-hmm. you know? And I chose I want to stay a technical person. So do you think as a technical person, you've had to change how you work inside the organization? Yeah. As a technical person that works inside the industry, what I had to learn coming in is that I actually had to deliver a product, and the product actually had to have value to somebody, mm-hmm. somebody that's paying the bills. You know, realistically, that, that's, that's fundamentally what happens. Fortunately, I learned that fairly early on, and that's what's kept me... To be able to do that. So I've had to learn on how I can convince others that I add value in there. Mm-hmm. And and whether I actually add value or not, it's the matter of convincing others. But it's still thinking about what are the problems and what can you actually fix. So most places, there are all kinds of problems. You know, there's always problems around and nothing's perfect. But what you have to do is not become overwhelmed by, by all those things that that don't work or are not perfect, but saying, actually, I can fix things. You know, I can fix things. I can use my brain to try to figure out what is the the, the most cost-effective way to deliver that result and then move on to something else. And still, you might have a long-term goal on where you want to get through all that, mm-hmm. but it's that add value and remain interested in what drives the business. Am I a high-powered financial person? No, no, no. But I certainly understand what drives the business and 
how I can add value to that. And that's what the name of the game is. So as soon as I back off and no longer become interested in, in helping Olympic Dam um, achieve more than what it can or achieve more than what it is right now, then I'm not going to be here. You know, and it, it's yeah, simple yeah. that you have to add value and you have to add value, particularly when you're just in really te- very strong technical roles. You have to actually learn that very soon. In our pre-interview, I kind of mentioned this, that, you know, like if I look at a large part of the role that you do, I would think you're doing largely academic research on Olympic Dam or the old body. So you've done a good job in saying that, you know, actually you have to preface that by having some short-term deliverables that meet business requirements. You can't just have these long-term kind of academic research pursuits without having a direct link to Mm. how it makes things better. Yes, those are very interesting points. A lot of the stuff that I do is because I'm a complete technical fiend, you know, yep. and, and have sacrificed a lot just to be the complete technical fiend. Mm-hmm. A lot of the academic things that I do, I'm given the latitude now, a long time ago not, and that was, that was after hours interest stuff, you mm-hmm. know, because as a scientist, and, and Roy Woodall instilled upon us that we have a duty to disseminate this information now and to document the, the ore bodies that we're depleting so that people can learn about them in the future. And that always stood in my mind. Now, sometimes the business loses sight of that, and Mm -hmm. they often do that, that our jobs aren't to disseminate the information as scientists out in the world. Our jobs are to deliver, but we're still scientists. And as scientists, we need to do our best to to push forward the understanding and the knowledge base that that we have to operate with. So a lot of that stuff that that my public appearance is a a lot of things that I do after hours. Mm -hmm. You know, so you do your normal work, but those between after hours and normal hours kind of merge and all that because I am given the freedom to or some freedom to to manage my time the best I can but while still pushing on those so fortunately I can do a lot of these things because I have an excellent team that supports me in the background too you know and they do all the hard slog stuff why I get to go off and talk to everybody just like uh, give presentations (laughs) give give presentations and go off to conferences and all that but part of the stuff that we learn as scientists is we have to expose our ideas that has to be open for challenging and so we can move forward you don't make advancements in isolation and sometimes in industry we seem to forget that we can advance on our own and you can't mm-hmm. you know it just doesn't work that way you actually have to be able to talk to other people you have to have to have other people challenge what you're doing so that you can actually move forward so do you think the type of role that you do you could only really do it in the industry if you have this view that you have to kind of give a lot of your ideas and knowledge away yeah because it's probably not yeah, and it's a massive generalization, but in academia, it is a lot more cutthroat about, you know, what ideas you have, you hold on to them, yeah. and you get the most amount of currency you can out of them before you let them go. Yeah. Whereas in industry, it's relatively the opposite. You want your idea to go out and get, yeah, tested by as many people as possible so you can then get the feedback as quickly as possible. Yeah, we've gone through phases in the industry where we become incredibly protective. They mm-hmm. think, again, it's delude ourselves to believe that once we have an idea, oh, that gives us a competitive advantage. Actually, it doesn't. What gives you the competitive advantage is actually how quickly you actually move on your ideas. Correct. Yeah. And we usually don't develop new ideas by uh, in isolation. You develop new ideas by talking to people. Usually what you're developing, there's other people developing similar th- things at the same time. Everybody kind of moves together. So you're really you're really not coming up with things that nobody else has come up with before. Yeah. There's very few original ideas in the world, let's there be are. honest. Yeah, right? and, and if you read and you communicate with people, you, you kind of build on that. You, you do become protective, you know, of, of your stuff. I should backstep a little bit. Early on in my career, I used to think I could do everything myself, you know, that I, you know, I love Olympic Dam. Nobody else can fully understand I don't need other people to help me along the way. Well, after a while, you, you realize that there's not enough hours in the day that if you're going to advance a lot of stuff, you have, to, you have to get a lot of other people working with you mm-hmm. and pushing towards that. So us going out and touching out to academia was to get others in to help me along that to help mm-hmm. that along that process, then that just helps you explode from just trickling out a little bit of information to a mass of information. Yeah. And it's also just the acknowledgement that some other people might be better at things that you are just not very good at. Right? Exactly. And that's what you hopefully you pick a team that of people that that if we all had the same skills, we're not going to go anywhere. We yep. need we need different ideas and we also need different backgrounds, different ideas and different approaches and different skill sets, mm-hmm. you know, so that we can advance as a team. The the changes that you can make having more people, the better. But I think the industry has moved away from wanting to be incredibly secretive, mm-hmm. you know, to, to openly sharing a lot more. Sometimes 
our exploration friends are a lot more closed about it. But I mind the opinion we have Olympic Dam. Nobody's going to take it away from us. Yeah, you know. So fine. why not share it? Is it going to help anybody find another ore deposit? Probably not, because it's going to be a whole body of information that that they build upon in order to find an ore deposit. So more power to them. Yeah, you know, that's the, right. <laughs> I mean, like my view is like even if it helps someone else find it, like isn't that better for everyone because there will be another explosion of information from yeah. them finding something? It, it is because people move around a lot, so you really can't keep things quiet. Yeah. It really just doesn't work that way, and so you just have to take advantage of the situation. And taking advantage is, is we're scientists, mm -hmm. you know? We communicate with each other and we build off of each other's ideas. Yeah, that's right. Um, so this avenue of like exploring new ideas, is time a problem for you in that sense? For example, you know, a lot of your work would be directly applicable to, say, the exploration group in this company because they will be using that information to try to discriminate or decide whether certain targets are good, bad, you know, look for new things, etc., but the time frame that you would work on trying to unravel this mystery would be different to the time frame that exploration would have to deliver yeah. something. So is is that often a, a source of conflict or how do you manage yeah. that? It's interesting. When we come out of university, we want to be 100%, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to wait till you're 100% because odds are you're never going to achieve it anyway. Yep. So, and a lot of delays that I did or excuses that I used for not publishing things in my early part at Olympic Dam is I didn't know, I didn't think I knew enough to do uh, that. Yep. You know, I need to know more and more and more. <laughs> well, the more you look, the more you know you need to know, you know, and so it's just the self-feeding stuff. But you go through and you say, once you realize you don't actually have to have it 100% correct, you just need the bulk of it and have a good compelling story or evidence data to support that and you're okay. The short-term stuff, the drive off of industries, you don't have to be 100%. You just actually, sometimes you have to make your best educated estimate that you can based on what you know right now. In the academic side or on the research side, you sometimes you, you think you always need more than what you really do. Mm -hmm. And so you're just striving, pushing, pushing, trying to answer it. But the media season industry is you need to fix a problem now. We can't wait, you know, 10 weeks or two years to fix it. We have to fix it now. If it's not 100%, that's probably okay, but let's just get going yeah, so we can move be on. okay with being wrong later yeah. on or fixing. Yeah, or fixing and realize maybe it's not a 100% solution, but you just have to put your bits out there and, and, and say this is what I think is going on based on the best information that you have available to you at that time. Are certain parts of the organization better at handling that and other parts that are maybe not as good as handling that? Yeah, I think that could be probably wrapped up in the idea about or, or discussed more around uncertainty and then variability. You know, mm -hmm. so variability, most people get, some don't. Variability is part of our life, you know, mm -hmm. and, and things change all the time. And the reason that, that we have mining engineers and metallurgists and geologists at sites, if there was no variability in our process, you know, from beginning to end, once the place is set up, you don't need technical people yeah, anymore. you could have shaved monkeys run the that's thing, right? right? Like... So it's variability and, and nature's little ups and downs. That's why we all have jobs, you yep. know? We have to learn how to articulate that better, and that's uncertainty helps that. The business now fully gets it that everything can't be 100% perfect, mm -hmm. but there is variability, but how do we actually define that variability a little bit better? So those are helping us, or the uncertainty a little bit better, and that's helping pushing us forward. But getting off of the stuff that we don't have time to wait for 100%. Yeah. You know, you just can't wait. When the mill's not spinning, yeah, you know, and I, the smelter's not, not yeah, give burning. Me, give me eight years and I'll give you the yeah, answer. That's nah, not going to work. No, nah. you, you have to get it going now. Then you can still work on maybe perfecting a little bit, but you have to make a decision. And I think it's important you talk about uncertainty because, you know, for every one person out there making predictions, there are a bunch of people telling you how wrong your predictions are as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there is this kind of philosophical problem where once you make a prediction, people seem to think that's now a fait accompli, that this is how it's going to happen. Yeah. And scientists, we don't usually clarify that uncertainty well enough. So given our data sets that we might have very widely spaced information, mm -hmm. You'll come up with a predictor, but then as you gather more information, it needs modification. So the, the thing at Olympic Dam, which is excellent for our predictors, is we have a process plant that's mm -hmm. running all the time. So you which can is do the all ultimate your feedback route. That's right. And, and so that's forced us immediately to actually have to figure out how can we verify our predictors, and then is there ways that we can improve those predictors if it's necessary to do that mm -hmm. as you go along. But we're always looking to, to improve them but not improve them for the sake of improving them. If it's going to change our business decision, then we improve it. But if it's not 
going to change our decision, then you don't need to change it. That's you know, it's I, all yeah. about doing it because there's a business case to do that. And if it's mm-hmm. going to impact on a decision, then you do the work. And if it's not going to impact on a decision, it's a nice esoteric thing that would be good to know. Yeah, know? that's right. Yeah. yeah, like I kind of mentioned this at the start of our interview that one of the reasons why I was really interested in having this conversation is exactly what you said, is that I think in order to do some fundamental research on ore deposits in our industry, I think it has to be kind of a mining pull or mining driven because... Your ability to test your hypothesis is just at a fundamentally different scale. You can just do it way quicker, way more immediate, have the response time a lot better. If you go to the other end where yeah, people are researching exploration processes, your ability to test them is just so fundamentally slower that you don't get that same feedback. So you maybe don't iterate and learn as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. So we're, when they're in the process of trying to predict performance... If I get the predictors wrong, we'll know about it immediately, and the pressure is on. And the pressure is not on, you know, that, that you were bad or anything, is your predictors were wrong. Yep. You know, what do you need to do to fix them now? When we, when we step back and we go more in the true exploration space, there are so many things that you don't know, you know? <laughs> Huge amount of things you don't know. It becomes an art, you know, and I believe it's really an art of collecting all the information that you have and trying to come up with your best guess of where you think to put that next drill hole. It's a lot tougher. And you can do a lot of long-term research on it, but you have to really think the explorers and the explorers in academia probably need to be closer together. Academia is working on things they think is important to the explorers, which is maybe not really important to the explorers. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a lot better communication, actually, between the two groups. So do you find that that's something that we as an industry could do better, the link between industry and academia? Yeah. Yeah. Historically, we haven't done good on that way. And then academia hasn't done good reaching out to us either. So it's a two-way street. Because it is a bit of an antagonistic relationship now to some degree, right? Yeah. And it has been for a long time. And, and it comes back down to the perception. The perception is that industry is only interested in applied research and academia uh-huh. is only interested in fundamental research. That is the furthest thing from the absolute truth. You yeah. know, it is so far off. But we all operated in that space for a long time and we actually believe that. What is different is actually how we take it and use that knowledge that we've gained. So industry does need to understand fundamentals, but they need to understand the fundamentals in a way that's going to help them fix that process. Mm-hmm. Academia is really interested in the groundbreaking fundamentals, but not pushing it on any further than that. When you get past the language and you're listening to what each other is asking for, you're asking for the same thing. It's just ask in a different way. Yeah, and and we don't communicate well within geoscience between academia and industry, you know, and, and we think then back even as geoscientists when we communicate pe- with people outside of our profession, you know, or in other disciplines and stuff, we don't do that very well. But when we sit and say, let's ignore everybody's backgrounds and actually try to understand what each other's needs are, we need the same thing. We just we just are asking for it in a different way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think there's a level of maturity we could get to. And, and the good thing for, for on the industry side, and it's not so good for the academic side, is the academic, academia in Australia, their funding models have, their historic funding models are completely different. Yep. And so they're now being driven more for immediate need back to the society, you know, for doing research for the good of society, which is pushing them out a little bit. Mm-hmm. But industry, because we also, we can't keep academics within our own organizations, mm-hmm. we actually have to use each other. You know, we have to we have to build with each other. And that's, I think it's helpful because it's pushing the groups back together again. Mm-hmm. It's a slow process and we do have recalcitrance and we get very hung up on, what we think is secret information. I can guarantee anything in the geoscience world that I'm aware of, there's nothing secret anybody's working on. You know, there really isn't. So we have to tell all of our colleagues, get over it, you know, (laughs) and to share the information so you can move on. Do you think that's getting easier, this whole, like, like perception of, I don't know what it is, like competitive advantage or IP? Like, yeah, is it getting easier where we're becoming a little bit more willing to share it across boundaries? Yeah, I think... My approach at Olympic Dam has been to say, well, let's just share the information, you mm-hmm. know, and, and just try to lead by example. All the geological stuff, our advances that we're making, even on the geomet space, we're sharing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, it hopefully shows others that there's nothing to be afraid of, that I'm not going to go over, take over your deposit or anything, nor am I going to take over your, your, your process, but it doesn't hurt, you know, and it actually 
helps us have better conversations. You guys will learn something if other people share information because that might allow you not to research 10 things. You might get the answer for five of them from other people and then that means you don't have to spend time doing those. That level of information would be helpful for the yeah. industry. So there are the, the, these cooperative research groups, you know, like mm -hmm. Amira does stuff, the universities, different programs that they have going on. And they've been working in that kind of space for a while, but it's usually secret within the people that are the sponsors. The research eventually gets out. But it's still, I think it's still open is a lot better. And, and our change in our whole um, IT world is pushing us all in that direction because the quick access to information, the instantaneous access to information is just becoming widely available. Yeah, that's right. And I think this is where having data is not important. Being able to do something with data has become far more important. And whatever data you want, you could probably find it now. Yeah. It's just, what do you want to do with it? It's taking action. It's exactly right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so we're towards the end of our interview. Okay. Before we go, we always try to ask our guests two questions. Yep. So the first one is, what is something, it could be an idea, a concept, a behavior that you think needs to die in our industry? Yeah. When, when you posed those to me before, I thought, oh, those are the toughest ones in there. <laughs> the big thing is really around the long-term advances that we make and the, the balance between short-term views of the world and short terms and our, our, our need, our apparent need for immediacy versus that long-term view and trying to get that balance. I think as an industry in general, we're, we're probably too short-term, you know, mm -hmm. on, on developing our fundamental knowledge that's necessary to push our, our, our technical side of our business forward. Uh, we really need to get past this. You know, it, it, it's not helpful. In fact, it's damaging for technical excellence to have very, very short-term views. You do have to have that long-term view. Mm -hmm. And what goes along with that, though, is, is complete cross-collaboration with each other. So we actually have to stop silos, even though we recognize it. You know, We recognize that we have sub-silos within, within uh, cross-disciplines, yep. but that's got to stop. You know, mm -hmm. The only way that we learn from each other, and my experience certainly was, I learned more about Geology of Olympic Dam by having to work with metallurgy than I would have ever learned if I was just only worked on Geology of Olympic Dam. Excellent points. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so last question, and conversely, what is something that you think we should maintain at all costs, something yeah. that's fundamental to our DNA? Yeah, fundamental to our DNA, because I'm such a strong technical person, it's always going to be about your knowledge base and, and building on your knowledge base and, and not destroying that, because every time you do what slows us down a lot, that loss of, of corporate knowledge, corporate knowledge and even industry knowledge, in general, we don't read enough anymore, mm -hmm. and we don't read enough. We don't know what's gone before, so we how can we actually make sure we don't recreate it again? It's all the same stuff that I think as we all get older, we say the same thing, <laughs> yeah. you know? But it, it's, it's really, it, it's the knowledge base, and people are in the knowledge base. Industry does say, you know, the people that are most important assets, they get that. They know that. But how do we actually foster that technical excellence that's going to drive the industry forward? And that's the stuff we need to maintain. We're driven by all kinds of short-term goals, and we do know we have long-term goals, but it's, we're short-term driven. Financial reasons, we're short-term driven, but you still, if you're going to be in the industry for a long time, you have to have the long view, but I don't think we've got that balance completely right yet. Perfect. That's a good a spot as any to end on. <laughs> yes. Thanks a lot for joining us, Kathy. This was great. Thank you. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and Ahmad. This episode was produced by Michael Carter, edited by Ahmad Salim, and recorded live at the BHP offices in Adelaide. If you would like to find out more about this podcast, check it out on explorationradio.com or follow them on LinkedIn or Twitter. And if you like this podcast and want to help out, there are two things you can do. Write a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from, and consider supporting them and producing more of this content. You can find the details on how to do that on the website at explorationradio.com forward slash support. Until next time, let's keep exploring.